Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. Welcome, you're listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food. Do you dream in food? Are you starting your first job, trying to change your path, writing your CV right now, or simply curious as to how the food on your plate gets there? We're focusing on the careers side of the food industry in this new series. I'm your host, Miriam Nice, and in this podcast, I'm going to be uncovering what it takes to have some of the most enviable jobs in the wonderful world of food. Have you got a passion for food and cooking, but also a sharp business mind? Are you keen to know how far a career in food could really take you? Well, with me today is food and drinks commentator and consultant, also a writer, presenter, co-founder of spice company Sizzle Spices, Malika Bazu. Warm welcome to the podcast, Malika. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you for having me. And is there is there nothing that you can't do? I mean, there's so many strings to your bow, plus launching a consultancy business during a pandemic. I mean, wow. Um, can you tell us a bit more in your own words about you and, and your work? Yes, of course. Um, so it sort of just ended up that I have five jobs instead of the one I really should. But I guess the unifying factor of all of that is food. So I have had a career in the PR and communications industry for the best part of 21 years. And about six years into that, I started writing about food. So I specialize in writing about the food of India in a way that is accessible for mainstream audiences, but also busy people, generally Indian or not. Um, And then in the pandemic, the opportunity came up for me to start my own business. Now, I'd already started a spice business towards the end of 2019. But of course, and we'll talk about this in due course, I'm sure, um, when you start an FMCG uh, product business, the first three years don't give you a lot of income. And so in the midst of the pandemic, when everyone was pivoting and chopping and changing and our lives had been ripped apart, I thought, well, I might do something I've always wanted to do. And I started a consultancy um, that looks at the role of food and drink in society, in culture, in diversity and inclusion, and importantly, in the in their in the role of post-COVID economic recovery. Fantastic. And tell me, right, like go right back. Like, what was your earliest memory? What did you want to be when you grew up? 
Um, the interesting thing about my career in food is that I hated food as a child. So I was a really picky eater and I keep getting parents asking me sort of, you know, my children don't eat. I don't know what to do. And I'm just like, listen, I pretty much did not touch food until I was in my mid to late teens. So just leave them be because guess what? I ended up writing two cookbooks and building a whole life and career around food. Um, but really, my journey started when I moved to England to do my undergraduate degree. My mom dispatched me from Calcutta, where I, was, where I was born and brought up, with the recipe for one chicken curry and one dal. And I arrived in England with those, not even knowing how to boil an egg. And you know, when people think about Indian cooking, they automatically assume that my mother had taught me how to cook and she was in her cotton saris. We had a big garden with mango trees and, you know, we were friends with Maharanis and Maharajas. But I had a very urban metropolitan upbringing in, in Calcutta. My mom was an actress. My dad loved cooking and has still has the pretensions of a chef. Um, and so really my first experience, you know, immediate and personal experience was with food was feeling very hungry in London. <laughs> As an undergraduate student, you know, suddenly all that delicious food I grew up with, the whole, you know, um, the whole sort of um, experience of eating as a family, uh, cooking together, enjoying having friends around, it had all just gone. And when I started my master's degree in journalism, uh, which was my second degree, I realized that unless I teach myself how to cook the food of my home, I basically just wasn't going to have it. So that's what kicked it off. And, you know, at the time I was a relatively young, inexperienced PR executive. I had a busy social, you know, professional family life. I was married already, didn't have kids though. And I just started documenting my adventures in a food blog, you know, sort of writing about my trials and tribulations in the kitchen. And it went from there, basically. Amazing. Fantastic. I love that. I mean, I started out blogging as well. So I'm just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> it's a really good place to start, definitely. And it's a good place because you've got that like, fairly small audience and then it gets bigger and you go, okay, that works, that works. It's a really good, good way to kind of get going. What are your favorite things about what you're doing now? What I love about what I'm doing now is that Work doesn't feel like work, if I'm honest with you. I've taken on challenges and things that I've never done before in my life. Like, you know, I've just combined my passions, but I recently ran a panel discussion um, on diversity and inclusion in the grocery sector for Grocery Aid, which is a charity, in front of 1,200 people. And it was only the second panel discussion I've ever hosted. <laughs> Um, I've trained people on cultural appropriation. I'm working with local government and the GLA, the mayor's office on the role of food and drink in the nighttime economy. Some really, really incredible projects that just put my love of food at the front, heart and center of the way we work today. And of course, the pandemic has been really, really amazing for that. You know, so it's been a horrible experience. And you know, there are lots of terrible things that came out of it, but I could see in front of my eyes how food was suddenly the great leveler the unifier, the thing everyone spoke about. You know, it gave brands the opportunity to reach people's homes in very novel ways. Dark kitchens, cloud kitchens, deliveries, you know, cook at home, 
make it home, all these things. And then key workers who would have thought that supermarket shelf stackers, you know, suddenly became the most important people in our lives. I mean, these, you know, every we were so grateful for people who were stacking shelves, who were going to supermarkets, you know, getting driving trucks, HG, HGV truck drivers, right? Like food and drink has suddenly become so important um, to the conversations we have today and the way we live today. So I think that for me has been really exciting, playing a part in, in, in what's happening with food and drink and how it makes a really positive impact to the way we live today. I mean, absolutely what you're saying about um, the importance of people in, you know, shell stackers. They appeared on the cover of Vogue at one point. I mean, it was just amazing sort of to look at and discuss. Um, Yeah. What do you think that there's things that will stay? I mean, there's so much innovation. What's your kind of predictions for the things that will sort of stay around? A hundred percent. There are lots and lots of things, trends um, that showed up in the pandemic and they're going to stay. I think people's relationships with food have changed considerably. A lot more people have started cooking at home. And I think once you get into that zone and you start doing it, you you know, you find your feet a little bit. Um, and so I, I do think that people will be cooking more at home, even if it's quick and easy, you know, they will be doing more of that. Um, I think the whole idea of how the hospitality sector actually engages its customers has changed considerably. So the same restaurant might have come and sit and eat in here. They might have a meal kit that you could actually order and cook at home yourself. They might have a takeaway um, or a delivery on an Uber Eats or a Deliveroo. So, um, you know, there are lots of different ways in which the way we're accessing food and drink have also changed. The people's relationships with their local um, local streets and local shops has changed considerably. You know, where you might always go to a big supermarket, you might have discovered other smaller shops um, or local stalls that you could access to buy ingredients. So lots of lovely little things. And I'm very hopeful that those things will stick around. Shop local is another trend you know buying things in your backyard from you know smaller entrepreneurs it's all very exciting okay and I'm just going to be a bit nosy now what was the last thing you ate (laughs) um the last thing I ate was this morning I bake my own sourdough bread, which started in the pandemic and has stayed uh, and I do enjoy it um I made some toast and I put on it a teaspoon of ghee which is Indian clarified butter that I was given as a sample by a really cool new um, ghee uh, brand. And uh, they're grass-fed cows. The ghee is the most delicious thing on the planet. And they have a flavor, which is morel pate. <laughs> and I plastered that on a piece of toast and then sliced an avocado on it and had it for breakfast. Then it went down very well. Sounds dreamy. Um, I'm going to ask you about your sort of what your friends and family thought. So what did they say when you said you wanted to make that move into food and food writing? My mother still thinks I'm a bit mad, if I'm honest with you, um, because I had quite a stable and successful career in the corporate world as a senior communications professional. Um, And to take that leap in the middle of a pandemic is, well, bonkers, I think, is the best word I can use to describe it. But I was unemployed. Um, I needed an, an income. 
I uh, I was homeless because I couldn't afford my rent because I was unemployed. I couldn't access any government support because I had savings, um, a, a savings account behind me. And really, it couldn't get much worse. There was also a pandemic going on. So I thought, well, this is about as bad. This is about as rock bottom as it can get. So I'm just going to focus on making it better. And that's what I did. And sometimes... You have friends and family and well-wishers who are just worried about you, you know, and you can understand that. You have to absolutely appreciate that it comes from a place of love. But if you have focus and you have conviction and you know you have a vision in your head and you can be single-minded about it, I think you've just got to go for it and see what happens. I mean, brilliant. Are there any other traits you think? So that kind of single-mindedness, is there any other traits that are really important if you want to launch your own, branch out on your own? If you want to branch out on your own, I think it's really important to be patient because things don't happen all in one go. And that's something I have a real problem with because I'm a bit like, what do you mean it hasn't happened yet? It needs to happen like now. The deadline was yesterday. But with any new venture, and this is just rules apply to the business world generally, you have to be really patient. I think you have to have uh, a bit of cash behind you. Um, It was fairly hairy for me at one point where literally I just had my savings to live on. Um, but it's it's important. You should have a little bit of a backstop because it takes a good six to eight months in the, in the case of a consultancy business to start earning something. In the case of a product business, you're talking three years. You're not going to make any income for the first three years. So that having a little bit of fallback option. And then I guess just self-belief and recognizing that every day isn't going to be amazing. You know, some days are really, really tough and you will want to weep into a wine glass while watching a rom-com. And then there are other days where you just want to be standing on a mountaintop screaming with happiness. And that's just the journey. And you have to enjoy the journey because that's part of the fun. You know, no one said it was going to be easy. Um, I think really importantly also, there's a toxic culture uh, that we live in, particularly in the West, which is that, you know, as an entrepreneur, as someone ambitious or career-minded, you have to work 24-7. You know, you give up the nine to five so you can be in control of your life, but now you're working 24-7. And um, and that's just nonsense. I think it's really important to look after yourself, to give yourself lots of love, to pat yourself on the back. When it's been a tough day, it's important to go to bed early, build in lots of space and time, you know, breathing, meditation, yoga, whatever your kind of good stuff is, but really take time to cherish and nourish yourself because you are the most important person when you kick off. And then, of course, very importantly, the people around you. So your team, your people, um, people who support you, also enormously important. It's really good advice. You you mentioned about taking time and that it's not um, nine to five. Talk me through a typical day for you. The interesting thing about working for yourself is that there is no typical day, I'm afraid, Miriam. <laughs> I wish... I wish I could. That's the one thing I miss about having like a steady job. Um, There isn't a typical day, but I do have my children with me half the time. And so uh, half the week I start my day with the school run and I've built exercise into that. So I um, run on the school run. And if it's horrible weather, I walk briskly on the school run and I do that before 
uh, I eat or drink anything. So I have a teaspoon of apple cider vinegar in warm water and I go and do that. So by the time I come back, I'm wide awake. <laughs> you know, I've got a bit of exercise in me. Um, and I have a lovely walk that takes me through slightly urban London, but also a very sweet park. So it's sort of lovely birds chirping, sun-kissed or a bit rainy, but it's a nice way to be with nature and just be in your own thoughts. And then come back and make breakfast, get ready. Uh, usually I work from home, but I do go once a week into Oxford Circus. I have a desk in Oxford Circus that I use. Um, and, you know, I, I take the effort, make the effort to dress up, to look good, even if it's just me. Uh, and it tends to be a combination of Zoom calls, um, meetings when they're allowed face-to-face, -face, when we're not in lockdown, uh, a bit of writing uh, and a bit of planning. I have some colleagues that I have a chat with, just just like touch base on activities, what needs to happen. I have an assistant, which is quite a recent addition to my team. So we'll have a quick sort of what's going on. Do I need to do anything? Have I messed up your job? Sorry, apologies for not being any good with my own admin. <laughs> but um, And then, yes, it's I tend to make a things to do list so I can tick things off. I also find it quite relaxing because then things aren't going going round and round in your own head. You've got a list and you just tick things off as you go on. And of course, I try and find the time to cook every day. So a big fan of cooking nice meals for myself. I do a whole meal for one series on my Instagram. Uh, I cook for my kids who love, they, they love my cooking. They're very grateful eaters, little gourmet babies, although they're not babies anymore. But um, And so I build in time. I take time out for lunch. I will cook something or I might go meet a friend or a contact for some lunch. Um, but it's all very pleasant despite the stress and the tensions. Great, great. I love the plan. I love a list as well. That's like my favourite thing. I think it was a revelation to me, like writing a list on a Friday afternoon for stuff I needed to do on Monday, because then your weekend is your weekend. Perfect. So. <laughs> yes. I really, I really recommend a list for that. I tend to do a list before I need to switch off um, or, you know, when I know it's going to be buzzing in my head. So evenings are a great time to do a list for the next day. Um Fridays are great for Monday lists and it just takes what's in your head and parks it in a very organized fashion and you, don't, you know you're not going to worry about missing things or forgetting things. Yeah, I love it. And can you tell us, you said that it's going to take, you said that launching a product takes sort of three years. Um, tell us about your company, Sizzle Spices. What does it take to launch that product? I founded Sizzle with three co-founders um, and uh, we all bring our own piece to it. And I essentially do the marketing and brand ambassador work. So using my contacts um, in the industry, but also my knowledge of how to use spices. Uh, the, the thing about products that most people don't realize is that there's a big time lag between having a product ready and then getting your channel sorted to actually sell it. And there are things you need to sort in between that to make it a success. And, you know, we've learned lots through our own experience and we're still learning and it's quite tough lessons. Uh, the first thing to do is do your market research really well, look at other products, ask consumers what they'd like, what they wouldn't like. The second most important thing is your margins. So a lot of food businesses start, food product businesses start, and they've been costed in a way that you could just never stock them anywhere. Because every stage of the process, when you have to get into a catalogue or a middleman to get um, get your product in a shop, and the middleman is going to put a 
put a markup on, to put a margin on, as is the ultimate retailer. So you're looking at anywhere between 30% to 50-60% on top of what your product costs, plus your own profit margin. So you've got your cost, then you've got your profit, then you've got, you know, your catalog, your wholesaler, then you've got your retailer. And, um, and of course, all of that has to work. Plus, there are costs of sale. So when you do eventually get into um, a retailer, they're going to want you to promote your products and you're going to have to pay to get them to do 50% off, 20% off, buy one, get one freeze. You know, that cost is not coming out of the retailer. And I think, For me, I would say that's been the biggest and hardest learning for us uh, is that, is, you know, getting the the costings right Uh, and then be prepared for the long haul. You know, three years is just the beginning. It could take even longer and having a really clear idea. So having a really clear idea of where you want your product to end up. So we came up with something that, you know, we had a real idea in our mind. It was a premium, heady, high-quality spice company. And that mattered to us because I'm a very keen cook, obviously, food writer. My business partner runs a very successful organic wholesale spice empire. He's a very keen cook. It matters to us that our spices really sang for the supper. Um, But of course, I don't think we realize, well, then which shops can we get into and how much should we cost them at? And those are all things we've then had to incorporate. In lockdown last year, we also came up with five multi-use blends. Um, and there's spice and herb blends that have a wide range of uses. So I think you also need to be prepared to just leap in when you see an innovative opportunity and you see a gap in the market for something. So we did that, and that's quite exciting. We're hoping to launch with a big-name retailer very soon, so fingers crossed on that front. Exciting. And I've seen you I've seen you on social media, like on videos. I've seen you on television. Your confidence and sort of calm, like natural way on screen, like where does that come from? And have you got any advice for anyone struggling with sort of presentation nerves? Because you must have to sort of pitch a lot of ideas. So what advice would you give? I have to be honest with you, I get the worst performance anxiety before I do any kind of public speaking, like almost crippling, almost like I will be sick in a corner any minute. (laughs) I've heard it's quite common, but I come from a family of very big personalities. You know, my dad's a businessman, my mom's an actress, my granddad is a politician. Um, You know, he was the head of the Communist Party in India, Marxist in India, and he was mates with like Fidel Castro and Maggie Thatcher. And and so I guess part of it is genes. I love being on stage and I love performing. Uh, My little sister actually was a child actress who won an award from the national government once. So I, I do have to say that it's not everyone's cup of tea and... Someone asked me how extrovert I was, and I said, well, standing on stage addressing 200 people is the most comfortable I feel ever. So it works for me. I enjoy it. I think a couple of things is really know your content, rehearse before going on stage. Uh, It's, you know, it's not everyone's cup of tea. You just have to find your balance, find your space. There's that great saying, imagine the entire audience naked, which... (laughs) often works. Um, But I do think breathing exercises before going on stage, they help me calm my nerves. Um, Knowing what I'm going to talk about, really rehearsing my lines, reading, um, learning what I'm going to speak about, my notes, all of that stuff helps. And fundamentally, I love it. So yeah, that's that's kind of why I do it and why I enjoy it. And what about... um 
What about consulting? So what sort of work do you feel people need to have under their belt before they move into that area? To do consulting generally, you need to have a certain body of experience behind you. I think consultancy is not something that's as easy to get into early on in the career. It can be done. I'm not saying it's impossible. I've met some fantastic entrepreneurs um, who've gone straight into consulting. But I think really focus on getting the experience. So if you can work in-house, if you can work with brands, you know, doing projects, doing maternity covers, really get that experience in you. Um, because a lot of it boils down to people trusting you to give advice, but you have to build that trust. And it's not age-reliant, it's experience-reliant. Yes. So I think that's a really important point. The other thing is really being able to connect and join the dots between the work you do um, and the people you know. So building your networks is a really important part of that. So knowing people to do things to your standards and level that maybe you can't, is really important for, for uh, consultancy as well. Because people buy you and they trust you. And if they buy advice and advisory from you that you can't deliver, they expect your wider team and contacts to be in the same zone and headspace. So I think those are the two most important things to think about if you'd like to go into consultancy. Are there any qualifications or certifications required? I wouldn't say so for consultancy. You could get, obviously, depending on what you want to do, if it's um, accountancy related or, you know, if it's a professional qualification, I would suggest it. I mean, digital marketing is one, for instance, where having some sort of training behind you before you go into SEO or digital ads, Google ads is probably worth it. Um, But I tend to work with people who do that as an expertise area. So I wouldn't myself be... I'm messing about with Google Ads, Miriam, I'm afraid. I know my limits. (laughs) (laughs) And what do you think the biggest difficulties um, someone might face when they're starting their own business right now? I think the biggest difficulty is new business development. One of the hardest things is to actually create something specific that people can buy from you because lots of people since the pandemic have given up their not-so-great day jobs And they've picked a life of consulting or freelancing. And people need to trust you and believe in you to buy from you. You also have to be really clear and um, focused about what it is you're selling. And that's one of the challenges I had in the early days when I started. It was like, right, I do all these things. I mean, I've got all this stuff. And yeah, if you give me a job, I could probably do it. But what is it that I want people to associate me with? And nailing that is very important because that is what's called positioning. And there's books written about this. Um, it's, It's an important concept in the marketing and communications world. But in a world where people are bombarded with a million trillion messages about everything, about people, about products, about social media. What is it? How is it that you stand out in someone's mind? And I think identifying that and then being dogged about repeating that in all your messages, all the TV, all the social media, you know, you don't do it for no reason. You do it with a very important purpose in your head. It's not for being famous per se. It's about constantly reminding people what you do, for a living, how you can add value to their lives, uh, how you can help them. So it's not just about selling, it's the value piece is really important. And you have to keep doing that over a period of time to bring your vision to life. And are you happy with sort of the 
positioning point that you've given yourself? Like, would you say that the job you're doing right now is your dream job? Or is there more things that you, you want to try? I would say the job I'm doing right now is the dream job, but obviously there's lots more I could be doing. I'm sort of a year, a year in two months, so like 14 months into um, into my consultancy business, uh, a couple of years into the spice business. And I'm one of those people who just does nothing without a plan for global domination attached. It's just everything has <laughs> a 10-year plan and a five-year plan. And sometimes, as we know, they do, things don't quite go to plan. Um, and uh, and so, yes, I've got lots more to achieve, but I think there's definitely enough positivity in the air for for me to stick to it, you know, and to see where we net out. And things could change, and I'm open to that, because that's what life is about, you know? Smashing. Um, we are almost out of time, but can I ask you to leave us with a few things that you you think that people starting out in their, in their own career should should do? So there are three or four things I would recommend that if you were interested in going down either the product route or the services slash consultancy route, um, definitely uh, subscribe to The Grocer. It is the UK's highest circulating uh, trade publication. Uh, and it, essentially, it's read by everybody. Everything you need to know about the food and drink industry is in the grocer. So I would definitely recommend that. The Guild of Food Writers is a great organization to join. Uh, I, in the interest of transparency, I'm committee member for diversity there. So, um, But I have found it to be a hugely supportive body of um, food lovers, food and drink lovers, and it's exceptionally well-networked. So if you're trying to find your feet in the food industry and turn it into a career, it's definitely worth doing. I would listen to the food program. Uh, Sheila Dillon has been around years. There is no topic in the food uh, food industry that they haven't touched on. Great little listen. So definitely do that. And then if you're interested in diversity and if you are a person of color, uh, I would look at Be Inclusive Hospitality. I mean, you could even be someone who would like to uh, engage more diverse communities in your business. And Be Inclusive Hospitality does some really interesting work. They're a relatively new organization, um, but they do some great things. And again, some lovely bits of training and a really interesting membership. So that might be looking at worth, that might be worth looking at too. Great tips. Malika, thank you so much for joining me on the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast. <laughs> <laughs> an absolute pleasure I really can't believe I get paid to do this so that's good oh wonderful next time I'll be finding out about another dream job in food in the meantime Malika is going to be recording a bonus episode with us in which you will learn more essential trade secrets directly from her so don't miss that at the weekend for more information visit bbcgoodfood.com forward slash podcasts bye for now You've been listening to the I Can't Believe I Get Paid to Do This podcast from BBC Good Food, hosted by me, Miriam Nice. Join me next time as I uncover another dream job in food and drink.